Look upon my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Those are verses 153 through 156 of Psalm 119. Verses 145 to 176 of that psalm are the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, August the 18th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look at the life of David in 2 Samuel 18, 19 to 33, the, look of the life of Paul in Acts 23, 23 to 35, and the life of Jesus in the Gospel according to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 27. So remember yesterday what had happened was is that this is the end of Absalom, the son of David's revolt against his father, the king. <clears throat> and, and Absalom has been killed the day before by um, Joab and his armor bearers as he hung <laughs> from an oak tree by his hair. And so <clears throat> Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, who's a priest, who is n- near and around Joab, says, let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. I, I don't know why he would have wanted to do that on the front end, because he's ar- surely he already knew that David had had two messengers put to death, the ones who told him about the, the death of Saul. Uh, David didn't handle that. If he believed you're the Lord's anointed, David didn't handle it well. If you're the one who came and told him, because it was presumed that you were gleeful about that, and that you um, had a hand in it. So so this son of the priest, uh, Joab restrains him, and he says, you're not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because this king's son is dead. It isn't going to go well for you if you do that. Then Joab looks at the Cushite, who is an Egyptian, and he says, you go tell the king what you've seen. His life's not as meaningful or as important, I guess, to, to Joab as, as the son of Zadok. And so the Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. And then the son of Zadok, Ahimaaz, again comes and says, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why would you run, my son, seeing that you'll have no reward for this news? And, and he says, Come what may, I'll run. So he said to him, Go, run. And so Ahimaaz runs by the way of the plain and outruns the Cushite. He knew the way, sort of, is what it's saying, that he, he, he had a... a sort of an insider's knowledge of this area and the quickest way to get there. So he takes a shortcut. He gets there ahead of the Cushite. So David's sitting there between the gates of the city, Mahanaim, where he is, and the watchman went up on the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. So he called out and told the king, and and David said, if he's alone, then he's bringing news. So I'm not worried about that. And so he draws nearer and nearer, and the watchman then sees another guy running. And he calls to the gate and said, there's another guy running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. So he's thinking that one is bringing an update, essentially. One's going to give him some news, and the second one's going to give him an update. And the watchman recognizes Ahimaaz. It must have been his thing. Must have been He must have been a messenger like this. So he recognizes him by the way he's running, and he explains who he is. And David says, he's a good man, and therefore he comes with good news. So Ahimaaz cries out, all is well. And he bows before the king with his face to the earth and says, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. Fantastic. We've won the battle. And then David said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? 
And Emoz, who had to know, says, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I don't know what it was about. And the king said, Didn't it turn aside and stand here? So he did. And then the Cushite comes, and he says, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you, which is exactly the same word that Ahimaaz has given. And then the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Same question. And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. So he knows that Absalom is dead. Because that's the wish. May that everybody who rises up against you be like him. And so the king was deeply moved and went into the, up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Reminds me a lot of <clears throat> Genesis 22, when Abraham is told to take his son, his only son, the one that he loves, up on the mountain. And here David's grieving for his son. He's grieving the relationship. No matter what he's done, he's still his son. It's, it, it, it's the way it's supposed to be in so many ways that, that, that no matter what our children do, we're, we're not to ever um, kick them away, kick them to the curb in our hearts. I mean, we have to do some tough love sometimes. But, but at the same time, the, the, there's, a, there's a link and a connection beyond the DNA that, that ties us to our children or is supposed to. And, and that was the work, remember, that, that Elijah was going to come to do before the Messiah came, was turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers. And so David, at some level, it's, it's a great thing that he loves his son. He was too indulgent with his son, but he loves his son. Good news is the Cushite lives, by the way. So he, he didn't suffer the fate of the others. Um, it, it's a painful, painful thing to see. But it was clearly necessary. God's plan was not for Absalom to take over the kingdom. That was, that was not in God's plan for that to happen. He, Absalom wasn't the right kind of man. He's proven himself to be treacherous. He's proven himself to be deceitful. He has proven himself on, on, a, on a bunch of different levels to be a man unworthy of being king. And yet he's still David's son. And so David grieves for him. No matter what he's done to him, David loved his children. It, it's, it's admirable, but at the same time, David's blind spot with his children, it becomes the biggest problem in his life. And so here he's grieving. He's grieving over over this son that he has loved. <clears throat> in uh, the gospel, so Jesus has already outwitted the scribes and the uh, elders and the chief priests the day before who wanted to know by what authority he drove the people out of the temple. Uh, and he's, he's w- stared them down <laughs> with, with the question about where did John's anointing come from? Was it from man or from God? And then he told the parable of the wicked tenants against them. And here now, all right, so somebody else is going to take a run at him, and it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. The most unlikely co-conspirators you're ever going to get, the Herodians are people that they would, Pharisees certainly would have considered completely compromised. That they're just, they've, they've become sort of very, very um, cultural Jews. They're participating 100% in the Roman Empire, and they've essentially kicked their religion to the curb. They, they use it when it benefits them. 
And so, um, so the two of those groups come together to try and trap Jesus in his talk, and they came and said, Teacher, we know, listen to this flattery, right? Teacher, we know that you're true and don't care about anyone's opinion. In other words, you just speak the truth. Come what may, let the chips fall where they may. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Thank you. You know, it's, it's unbelievable that the flattery they come to him with. Um, and then they, they have a question. The question is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? There's a legitimate question there because Caesar claims to be king. And they can't recognize another king in a foreign power. And so is it okay if we pay taxes to him or not? Now, the Herodians wouldn't, wouldn't have had any problem with that at all. The Pharisees would have had some argument about it, about whether it's okay or not. There are people today who have problems with paying taxes. So that it becomes this question, should we pay them or not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, the hypocrisy is the Pharisees and the Herodians are coming together to ask this question so that, that there's no genuineness at all. While they're saying he's true and he truly teaches the way of God, they're being anything other than true. And that's what, that's what that means when he says he knew their hypocrisy. He said to them, why, bring, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So that's the coin, right? So they bring the coin to him and he looks at him and he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they say, it's Caesar's. He said, okay. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And what he's, he's looking at, and he's seeing a picture of Caesar on this, and he says, who does it belong to? Well, it belongs to the one whose, whose likeness and inscription is on it, right? So it belongs to Caesar. It doesn't belong to you. You don't own it. It can be taken from you at any given time because it belongs to Caesar ultimately. He's allowing you to use it, but it belongs to him. And so he says, so give him what, what belongs to him then. It's just money. That's all it is. But render to God the things that are God's. And so the question then becomes, what does he mean by that? Well, the answer is simple, really simple. It's just whose likeness and image do you bear? So it's your life that belongs to God. It's this stuff, these, these you know, coins that belong to Caesar. That's not a big deal. You can pay your taxes to Caesar with, with the things that belong to Caesar, but you've got to pay to God and give to him that, that which belongs to him, which is his likeness and his image. It's a powerful statement that Jesus makes there, and they marveled at him. And then, all right, so now we've, we've had the chief priests and the elders and scribes run at him, and then now we've had the Pharisees and the Herodians. Well, there's one group left. And that's the Sadducees, and they come to him, and they don't believe in the resurrection. We already know that because a couple of days ago, Paul divided the council of elders based on that Pharisee-Sadducee split about believing in the resurrection. Paul says, hey, this is all about the resurrection. And so they can't now, oh, wait, huh? We, we're split into factions. So the Sadducees come, and they, they have a question about the resurrection. They said, hey, isn't it true that Moses wrote, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So the firstborn child then belongs to his brother is what that means. It, it's, it's, it's preserving the brother's inheritance. You can have more children than one, but you're preserving your brother's inheritance. Otherwise, it's, it's subsumed into your family. And so it's a great act of love for your brother to provide a child for him by his, his widow. And so, this is, so, let, let's, so isn't that the truth? That, that's the truth, right? Moses gave us that. So, okay, how about this? There were seven brothers, and the first one took a wife, and he died without children. So the second one 
took her and the third one took her and on and on and none of them provided children so at the resurrection which we don't believe in um then whose wife will she be and jesus said to him is not this the reason you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of god and and his answer is basically is is that you're thinking of of heaven and the afterlife and you're thinking of that as some sort of that that this life is some sort of analog for that life and that's not true because as for the dead being raised um when they rise from the dead they neither are given nor given in marriage but they're like angels in heaven which is to say they don't reproduce and and they are self-sufficient in themselves they need nothing to complete them it's not sort of the yin and yang of life. It's not the, the you need another person to be whole, and, and which is what the, the point of that marriage thing is. And, and then he said, don't you understand all this? God says to Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. In other words, what he's saying is, is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive with him. So it's a powerful statement that Jesus makes about resurrection. And one of the things that, that, that sustained us, and still does, with this thing that happened with our son Will, um, is we knew that we would see him again at the resurrection. That was where our faith was. Our faith was in the knowledge that we would see him again at the resurrection of the dead. It, 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 it was dramatic and wonderful that we got to see him again in this life. But, but our faith was literally completely based in faith in the resurrection, 100% faith in the resurrection. One way or another, it would be okay. It would be painful, but it would be okay. And so in, in this passage from Acts, Paul, remember, has been secreted away because of this conspiracy of 40 men to kill him, and they were not going to eat or drink, and they'd taken an oath before God to do that, and that's a whole different situation. But but taking that oath before God, they can't be delivered from that oath. They're, 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 they're going to sin if they eat. I mean, that, that's how serious an oath-taking was, is that that's considered a, a serious sin against God because you've broken your word to him. And so the tribune sends a couple of centurions with a couple hundred soldiers, a couple hundred spearmen, and 70 horsemen. So what is that, 470. So it's almost an entire cohort being sent out uh, to go as far as Caesarea about the third hour of the night. So, as I said, that's about midnight. So they go, and they go part of the way, and he writes a letter to the governor, Felix. He says, This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And then it was disclosed to me that there was a plot against the man, so I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers to state before you what they have against him. Now, that's not an entirely true recounting, not, at least not in a very literal sense. He, he, the way that he learned that Paul was a Roman citizen wasn't quite the way that he says it there, but it's true in, in, its, uh, in its brevity, let's say. In, in a brief way of saying it, if you're going to describe that whole situation briefly, then yeah, that sort yeah, okay. Um, and there's no harm done ultimately, but it, but it certainly makes him a bigger hero than he than he really was in the moment about discovering the Roman citizenship because he had ordered Paul to be flogged. <clears throat> so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul. They got him to Antipatris the first night, and the next day they take him on. Uh, the, the soldiers come back, but the horsemen there's two hundred there's seventy horsemen. They go on. 
with Paul and take him to Felix. They've got a head start on the Jews. They've done this under cover of night, so they've got this big head start on the Jews, so they're not too worried about their ability to overtake them and do anything to Paul. So the soldiers come back, the horsemen continue on, and they get him to Felix, and then they present Paul before him, and in reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and he learned that he was from Cilicia, and he says, I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded to him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So the plot's going to fail, but it's got Paul under arrest by the Romans. And he's considered at some level to be a, not an enemy of the state, but to be a danger to the state because he's a danger to the, to the Pax Romana. He, he's a danger to, to be a disturber of the peace because he's already disturbed the peace once in Jerusalem. And so now he's going to be held here and he's going to be held before Felix because the, the tribune didn't have the power really to try him. So, so what he's doing is he's sending him to the next highest authority who can deal with this issue. He, and and he, he's not placed any charges against Paul. He's just said, I don't know what's going on. This doesn't seem to have anything to do with Rome, but we got to keep the peace. And so in order to keep the peace, I'm sending him to you. So there's sometimes you kick the can down the road just to avoid the responsibility. But in this case, the man didn't have the ability and the authority to try Paul one way or another. And so he's doing something to protect the peace, but also to, to say, I don't know what should be done here. I'm not sending him along with any recommendations. I'm just telling you that the only accusations I've heard against him have to do with Jewish law and, and, and not in a way that requires us to, to either give him death or imprisonment. So it, it just doesn't make any sense to him. And so he pushes the ball down the road and he gets it down to Felix. And, and so there, there's in the unifying element between these three stories, um, the story of, of, Ab, of the, the messengers giving the, the fate of Absalom, also in the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians coming to Jesus, and then in this one, it again comes down to the same thing, right? I mean, it's be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. I can't say it enough. We've got to develop that same thing. We've got to be the people who know the times and understand the times that we live in in order that we could be um, good witnesses, in order that we can, we can answer objections to, the, to, to our uh, gospel proclamation the way Jesus does. But we've got to know and understand and stay in the moment and know who we are and what we believe. And we've got to be able to separate those things eternal from those things temporal in order that, that we not get ourselves emotionally wrapped up in the, in the temporal, that we can see through those things to the truth of those things rather than allowing ourselves to get caught up completely in them and no longer have the objectivity we needed to continue to proclaim the gospel straightforwardly.